This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome to 15-Minute History. My name is Brooks Winfrey. I'm a PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Texas at Austin. My guest today is Dr. Manisha Sinha, the Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut and this year's invited speaker for the Littlefield Lecture Series. Today we will discuss the movement to abolish slavery in the United States, the subject of Professor Sinha's 2016 book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Professor Sinha, welcome to 15-Minute History. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So you wrote a book uh, two years ago now about abolition, about abolitionism, received a lot of attention. But before we delve into that too much, I want to touch a bit on your first book, The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, Politics, and Ideology in Antebellum, South Carolina, which was uh, released in 2000. So in that book, you examined secessionists in South Carolina, a state Mm -hmm. generally associated with secessionism for very good reasons. Uh, And you examined a group of people who began advocating for that state and for the South to remove itself from the Union, beginning actually several decades before the war. So I was just a little curious, after studying these radical people, mostly men, mostly white men, wealthy, politically connected slaveholders, how did you then decide to write a volume about abolitionists? Yeah, that's a great question. So the facetious fast answer is that I actually wanted to write a book about people I liked, right? (laughs) Um, But um, because I had studied in such great detail um, secessionist ideology, both states' rights constitutional theory and also the pro-slavery argument, I wanted to look at the opposite sense end of that ideological divide. And uh, to me, the abolitionists really did represent that. And writing this book, I, you know, had a good sense of what the abolitionists were up against, because I had studied uh, how South Carolinian planter politicians were at the vanguard of the secession movement, um, from nullification to secession. And one could really uh, see the enormous national political power of Southern slaveholders, and of the centrality of the political economy of slavery in the early American Republic. So when you see how entrenched the institution of slavery was, uh, not just in Southern life, but in, you know, the national American political structure and also uh, the national economy, you really got a sense of what the abolitionists uh, were up against. And I think it allowed me to appreciate the abolition movement and their arguments better because I had studied their opponents uh, so deeply and so well earlier. That's very interesting. So if secessionists became active decades before the Civil War, when did we first start seeing abolitionists becoming active in the United States? Another good question. You know, my sense of abolition, as of most people, was that this was primarily an antebellum movement. The You know, the period just maybe three decades before the Civil War, um, that this was the prime moment of the abolition movement. But as I studied uh, the abolitionists, black and white, I realized that there's a long sort of history to the abolition movement that historians tended to neglect. And that was the first wave of abolition uh, during the American Revolutionary era 
era, which resulted in emancipation in the North. Uh, So I sort of moved back and looked at that first wave of abolition in the revolutionary era and went ahead to look at the sort of interracial, more radical movement of the pre-Civil War years. Uh, And I realized that this history had a lot more continuities than disjunctures. And that in order to appreciate the movement as a whole, uh, I would need to tell that story in the long durée. So, yes, I uh, I, I went back uh, to the revolutionary era. I also realized, you know, having studied the South Carolinians, uh, even though my book looks just the period from, as I said earlier, from nullification to secession, which is around the 1820s to 1860. Uh, When I wrote that, I had actually studied a lot of the earlier positions that South Carolinians had taken. And I found that they were taking many of these sort of pro-slavery, very overtly anti-democratic positions, you know, right from the revolutionary era. So I could not include that in, you know, that book is not so big. It's, It's a shorter monograph. But I, I realized that the debate over slavery, you know, had begun in the founding moment and that it continues uh, and accelerates uh, in the period before the Civil War. I know a lot of scholars like to focus on the revolutionary period with abolitionism, the so-called post-natty laws, mm-hmm. uh, which is when slavery was abolished in the North, mm-hmm. obviously never been as entrenched as it was in the South. Mm-hmm. But you find quite a bit of continuity over time, even though the country's changing very much, slavery's expanding across the country, mm-hmm. you see great continuities with the revolutionary period and with the antebellum period. Well, not uh, in terms of the broader period as a whole, but in terms of abolitionists and the movement to abolish slavery, the tactics that they adopt, the ideas. The conventional historical wisdom was that the first wave was very sort of gradualist, conservative, that it was a predominantly white-led movement, uh, that really in the antebellum period it becomes a more radical interracial movement. Um, And what I found was that if you look at just the abolition movement, some of the early abolitionists would be considered radical. You know, they uh, practiced interracialism. They demanded immediate abolition, even though, you know, the the laws, as you put it, were post-Nazi. They freed children of slaves and not the slaves themselves. So they unfolded over a long period of time in the northern states. And even though slavery was not such an entrenched institution in the north, there was a lot of opposition to emancipation. And that's why it takes such a long time to sort of make those laws and get them implemented. And abolitionist activism really flowers at that time in making sure that these northern laws of emancipation are implemented. So even, for instance, a new state like Vermont that abolished slavery in its constitution, in order to implement that constitutional abolition, you had to have African-Americans and their anti-slavery allies, lawyers, um, you know, bring up cases that would implement those laws. So I make a differentiation between these sort of state-mandated laws that were generally compromises between, you know, slaveholders' interests in their property and the slaves' desire for freedom and the abolitionists who were the activists uh, sort of pushing the button on this issue on the ground. While we're on the subject of the abolitionists actually pushing the button, in your book you wrote that the movement was driven by uh, passionate outsiders and Mm -hmm. that abolitionists were hybrids of old-fashioned moralizers and modern exponents of human rights. Mm -hmm. So who were American abolitionists? So that is a 
very uh, interesting question too, because abolitionists have always been uh, so traditionally viewed as these uh, fanatics and extremists, and uh, you know people who uh, were these so sort of religious fanatics, or they were um, you know people who suffered from status anxiety, and uh, there were all kinds of weird reasons that historians had put forward on abolitionist motivation. And what I found is that they were just ordinary American citizens. You know, they were ordinary, uh, and many of them non-citizens actually, uh, ordinary people, um, black and white, men and women. Uh, and that is why I employed what I call a social movement perspective in understanding abolitionists and not looking at the movement as one of just, you know, these uh, outstanding individual leaders uh, or of just distinct groups that sort of exist by themselves, black abolitionists, women abolitionists, uh, etc. But really to see it, uh, them as part of a broader movement, uh, with its uh, own ideology, with its own print culture, with its own organizations. And in fact, as a, in opposition to some historians who have argued that abolitionism was mostly a white movement, most members were middle or upper class whites, mm-hmm. you place African Americans and slave resistance at the center of the history of American abolition, correct? Absolutely, I do. Um, I think the the notion that somehow abolitionists were these northern middle class bourgeois reformers uh, who had, uh, you know, they were basically armchair philosophers who who had no idea about the reality of slavery uh, is a caricature that is derived from uh, defensive responses by southern politicians and slaveholders to the rise of the abolition movement. And uh, many of them had simply erased the black presence uh, in the movement. Um, And I also did not want to do uh, a book that looked only at African-Americans in isolation, as many had done before me, because I think if you do that, you cannot understand their impact on the broader movement. It was very important for me to reimagine the movement as an interracial movement and to look at uh, the the sort of space and oppositional space that it created for these interactions to take place. Uh, There were relationships of cooperation sometimes of conflict too. Um, So uh, in order to do that, I thought it was important for me to write this sort of broader history uh, of abolition um, and look at the emergence, especially of fugitive slaves within the movement. So the latter half of the book is really uh, devoted to uh, what I call fugitive slave abolitionists, of whom Frederick Douglass was only the most outstanding. There were a whole slew of them. Um, and uh, how they sort of acquire leadership positions within the abolition movement and really become the face of the movement uh, on the eve of the Civil War um, and how slave resistance moves and radicalizes the movement uh, towards more um, sort of revolutionary directions, especially in the 1850s uh, over the contestation of the draconian fugitive slave law of 1850. Um, So you end up with somebody like John Brown, who's always seen as this crazy, aberrant, insane abolitionist, uh, and you can really place him within these broader trends within the movement of the 1850s. So it was important for me to stress the interracialism of the movement. That's fascinating. And I guess you could say, you know, perhaps some historians have placed anti-slavery activism from whites sort of in one camp Mm -hmm. and slave resistance in another, and you join those together. But what are some specific acts of slave resistance perhaps you could share with us that really drove the movement that informed how people thought about the abolition of slavery in the United States? 
Yes. So for the early uh, period, of course, I talk a lot about the impact of the Haitian Revolution on the abolitionist imagination. This is true not just of the French, the British, but also of American abolitionists. And I have, I think, ample documentation in the in the book on that. Um, but for the later period, uh, besides the sort of iconic slave rebellions uh, that take place at the same time as the rise of a radical immediatism. You know, the most famous, of course, is Nat Turner's rebellion. Uh, and it's not as if Nat Turner's rebellion leads to the rise of abolition. It just coincidentally happens in the same year that William Lloyd Garrison starts publishing The Liberator. Uh, and what was interesting to me was that Garrison is one of two American editors to defend Nat Turner. Now, Garrison is a pacifist. He believes in nonviolent tactics. Uh, and to me, uh, just the statements that he makes on slave resistance and slave rebellion uh, become a very important window into the abolitionist mindset uh, on this issue. Now, besides sort of certain slave rebellions that, that sort of push uh, Anglo-American abolition, and I also look at um, you know, the famous Christmas Rebellion that acts as a catalyst um, to British abolition, um, I looked really at what I call these fugitive slave abolitionists who fed into the movement. And if you look at many of these iconic cases around fugitive slaves or slaveholders sojourning with their slaves in the North, you can actually tease out this relationship between grassroots black activism and anti-slavery law and politics. Um, there are really important court cases that are fought uh, in the North, establishing, quote, the freedom principle uh, in the North, right? Uh, making sure that slaves either uh, fleeing from slavery, are not remanded back to slavery, free blacks are not kidnapped into slavery, or slaveholders sojourning with their slaves cannot just sort of bring their slaves to northern states that had made slavery illegal. Uh, and I looked at many of these court cases, and what I found was that alliances are being built, not just amongst black and white abolitionists um, and abolitionist lawyers, but also with anti-slavery politicians. So when abolitionists ask, for instance, John Quincy Adams to represent the Amistad rebels, uh, before the Supreme Court, that's nothing new and unusual. There's a long history of doing that uh, in the 1830s and 40s, recruiting anti-slavery politicians. So the notion that these abolitionists are these like crazy agitators with no understanding of politics and that they were not intervening in that sphere is is actually rather simplistic and goes against the historical record. And uh, many of these cases, the Latimer case in, in Massachusetts, all this leads to Prig versus Pennsylvania. You know, that doesn't come out of the blue. And the fact that the new fugitive slave law is passed also is part of that. So the argument I'm making in the book is that the sexual controversy over the extension of slavery has to take into account the conflict between northern laws of freedom and southern laws of slavery uh, and how abolitionists, you know, use the opportunity of all these uh, dramatic, actually, cases um, to get personal liberty laws enacted in the north and make sure that enslaved people have the due process of law, a trial by jury, uh, etc., available to them uh, when they come to the North. So in addition to being very active in the movement to abolish slavery, mm -hmm. which was perhaps not as radical as some people have thought it was, uh, abolitionists were actually involved in many other reform movements as well. And do you think mm -hmm. that the history of abolition can tell us something about other 
reform movements either contemporaneously or perhaps after emancipation as well? Absolutely. I think uh, abolition becomes sort of the breeding ground, certainly for the women's rights movement. Uh, um, You know, I trace that out, how the antebellum women's rights movement in the North really emerges from abolition. And, And Southern slaveholders are quite aware of this, because when they critique abolitionists, they critique them for espousing what they think are all these dangerous new isms, and not just abolition of slavery, but also feminism, Uh, socialism as in utopian socialism. Many abolitionists are involved in communitarian projects in the North. Um, They're involved sometimes in the early labor movement. Um, They call themselves abolitionist socialists. They looked at the plight of free white wage workers in the North also. Um, Many of them are involved in the international peace movement. And so it was interesting for me to look at all these transnational networks of protests that abolitionists were cultivating and the ways in which contemporary radical movements overlapped with abolition. This is true not just of white abolitionists, as is uh, usually told, but true of black abolitionists uh, like James W. C. Pennington and William Wells Brown, who attended international peace congresses, um, became known uh, in the movement uh, and became known to European uh, radicals and revolutionaries. Uh, uh, certainly abolitionists form a lot of connections with uh, European revolutionaries during the 1848 revolutions, their connections with the Russian reformers fighting against serfdom, their connections with Indian nationalists questioning British rule. Uh, To me, these international connections were really important because historians had pretty much ignored them. Uh, And it was important for me to tell that story. And I do that in an entire chapter devoted to it uh, called The Abolitionist International. That's fascinating. Well, Dr. Manisha Sinha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.